holiday tips, and wine stories from Kristen and Paul at Total Wine and More. The sweetness of a maple glazed ham paired with a bourbon barrel aged Cabernet. We went there. Now my taste buds are hopping. I can help you impress the boss with a great bottle of wine. Here's to a raise in 2019. As you check off that gift list, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection at Total Wine and More. Come explore at our 12 Northern Virginia locations. Now open in Reston at Plaza America Center, across from Whole Foods. Shop online at TotalWine.com. Your healthy radio addiction starts now. Don't wanna fuck with your mouth all glued up with honey juice. I asked you a question. Oh my god, this girl's really turning me on. Suck me sideways. Are you gonna pull those pistols and whistle Dixie? Hollywood's motorcycle madhouse on iHeartRadio. Crack that throttle and let's get this show on the road. You don't want to fuck with your mouth all glued up with honey juice. I asked you a question. Oh my god, this girl's really turning me on. Suck me sideways. Are you gonna pull those pistols and whistle Dixie? Hollywood's motorcycle madhouse on iHeartRadio. Why do men join motorcycle clubs? Uh, there's many reasons why, and uh, they're gonna explore it in this article. First, it also depends on the club itself. Guys don't just join a club for the sake of joining a club, but because that a club offers a specific purpose. Each have different prerogatives, philosophy, and of course, the people in the club have their own personalities. Boy, do they got that right. And that makes each club or chapter unique. There are many motorcycle clubs founded with the purpose of brotherhood. That's something that you hear all the time, but it's what behind that brotherhood is the big question. Some of these clubs are more like support groups, uh, particularly on staying clean and sober. There's a lot of those nowadays. Those are real cool clubs. And you know what? Them guys are real cool partiers. You know, they don't, uh, you know, mess around with alcohol or anything like that. Uh, there's a quite a few that are military based. Uh, those are the ones I really love. Uh, the ones who served our country. You know, we got some that's active military. Uh, you know, it's a basic way for the group of uh, soldiers to keep on going, sage, uh, sailors to keep on going with their brotherhood. Because they got a lot in common, man. They got the service of this country behind them. Uh, there's also the face, base motorcycle clubs. You got a lot of Christian groups out there. Many of them. You got uh, stuff like, uh, what do we got out there? Uh, help me out there, guys. What do we got out there as far as uh, Christian clubs, Christian Motorcycle Association, Son of Gods, uh, Son of Judas out there. They're real good guys. But it, it's mostly, you know, like the article says, they join because they're wanting more than something than themselves. Be it a sense of brotherhood, uh, family partying, Healing, if you're wondering, and now this is for the ladies out there, if you're wondering why your husband or boyfriend wants to join a motorcycle club, take a look at the club. Uh, most guys join a club because the club offers reputation. You know, that could be stuff like support clubs, one percenter clubs. And you know what? They write off of reputations that happened, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Be it good or bad, man, it's out there in the club scene. Uh, the reputation's going to rub off on them. Boy, I bet my old lady could tell you that. You know, the larger clubs rely on an organizational type of structure to keep order. And a lot of military vets, they really like that kind of stuff because, you know, take Vietnam, for instance. Those guys coming out of Vietnam, they were highly structured guys. And they wanted that to continue on the outside world, especially... You know, having to come home and people spitting on them, throwing shit on them all the time. And uh, that was terrible what our uh, Vietnam vets had to go through back then. That was just unreal. Yeah, you got back, uh, you got forgotten ones. Then, it, you know, it goes into a little, little bit more about, you know, 
riding groups make you more disciplined. And I have to agree there. There's nothing like riding at 90 miles an hour, you know, three feet apart and bumper to bumper, or, you know, tire to tire. That's the biggest freaking adrenaline rush I've ever got. So there's that. <laughs> IH, I like that one. <laughs> hey, man, I'm independent here, man. I can't uh, be agreeing with that shit. But <laughs> and another reason is you get like-minded individuals in the clubs. People that's been through the same shit you've been through. Like me, uh, you know, I in Chicago, going, you know, my neighborhood, it was mostly street stuff, gang shit. And, you know, moving up, my first club was more like, you know, banging kind of club. And it was just a natural progression once you got out of the gang scene to move up. You either had two ways in Chicago. You'd either stay in the gang system or you'd go into a club system and they try to beat the shit out of you. But uh, it was just a natural progression for me. But uh, a lot of people, they want brotherhood. And brotherhood's where it's a sticky issue with me. It's really a sticky issue. I know I've caught a lot of fucking flack <laughs> on the internet and stuff like that. As far as, hey, Tom, as far as the brotherhood's concerned. Now, you got to remember me coming up, and this is just my background. This don't have, this is just an opinion, man. This is just for debate or, you know, getting a subject going. But coming up, on the streets, you know, I got to work with some people, and I remember an old guy, you know, I worked for, you know, it was funny, Broadway and Lake Street, uh, it was one of the neighborhoods that were great until the FBI came through and just tore everything out of there, but he took out a, you know, he, you know, a 70-year-old guy here, I am 15 years old, and says, take out your wallet, so I took off my, you know, I took out the wallet, and he says, you know, now give me your license, I gave him my license, and he says, here, kid, this is the only one you're going to ever be able to trust. And that stuck with me throughout my life, so it's been hard for me to trust a lot of people, you know, because, quite frankly, if you guys see it out there or not, it's hard to trust people out there, man. They'll turn on you on a, you know, <laughs> they'll turn on you on a dime, let's just put it that way, and... You know, so brotherhood's elusive. I would never call people brothers. It was always, hey, bud, how you doing? Even if they were wearing a patch because I was with the Pistons or the Predadoras with that beforehand, it was always, hi, bud, how you doing? Unless I really knew you, I grew up with you. So you got to ask yourself, brotherhood, you know, what is it? What's your definition of it? And, you know, how are you going to go about it? Now, when you're in a club like I was the first time, Let's be honest, the brotherhood wasn't there. It was all about the green. It was all about making the money. Come on, we were running escort services and all that in the, you know, the first club I was in with, in the 90s. So, yeah, we could go out there and say it was about brotherhood, but it really wasn't. You know, again, it was just a natural progression for me from coming from the streets going into a motorcycle club. And it ended up happening after that motorcycle club, after about five or six years, it turned straight into a, more of a organization, if you will, with a lot of prison chapters and stuff running in and out of that. But going back to motorcycle clubs, uh, they really were trying, you know, built on uh, brotherhood, it, you know, again, define your definition of, you know what, that old guy kept me out of more shit up to this day than I'll ever you know what, if it wasn't for them guys, I'd freaking be locked up by now, you know. Uh, yeah, they taught me a whole lot of shit about life, man, let me tell you about that. And it's it's pretty sad, you know, some of them died in prison and shit like that. But, uh, yeah, they taught me a lot. And that's one thing, you know, that I even pass on to my kids and stuff like that is, you know, when they get of age, you know, thank God I got out of, you know, I got them out of Chicago because you can raise a kid in Chicago right now. I don't know if any of you are from Chicago, but it's shy rock down in that motherfucker right now. <laughs> you know, it's nothing but, yeah, people are getting shot left and right down there, and I'm not going to have the kids grow up in there. You know, I was there up until a few years ago, so I'm a 40-year-old plus Chicago boy, but I didn't want my kids to go through that shit. So, uh, yeah, we moved them out. But when they got of age, I... 
do the same thing. Pull out your wallet. Take out your ID. Let me see that ID. And I'll tell them straight up, that's the only person you'll ever be able to trust besides your family. And some people are messed up out there with their families you can't even trust. But um, I'm blessed that I have a tight-knit family, you know, got that Italian blood and all that stuff that runs through us. So family's everything to us. So what do you guys think, man, of, uh, you know, that article and stuff like that? You know, they try to put it more into a plain type of Jane type of deal. And this stuff has been freaking debated for years, why people join motorcycle clubs. And I think it's more goes to the tribal instinct of man. You know, you got your one tribe here, you got your other tribe there. And, uh, you know, personally, you know, like it says, it depends on what tribe you want to be a part of. Me, I... Uh, Got enough of my fill uh, in the 90s with all the crap that went down. And then I decided to go to uh, the support group for the AOA, the Black Pistons. And I love the Black Pistons. You know, there was no better guys in the world. The Black Pistons were all about partying and, you know, riding, having fun. You know, the group of guys that we had in that chapter, shit, we still talk to this very day. I just talked to a couple of them yesterday. You know, because the book got released and all that good stuff. And they were all excited that they were in it. And, uh, you know, but, you know, one guy, Rooster, he's down in Kentucky. I got Red up here. We got Moon. You know, we used to do everything together. It was a daily thing back then. Uh, a lot of clubs ain't like that no more. You know, I remember the first one that I was in. We actually all lived in the same apartment complex. God forbid I felt sorry for that apartment complex. <laughs> we were partying out by that creek every night, lighting up some shit. But uh, you were RZ? Yeah, Chi-Town 15 years ago. It was actually doing good 15 years ago. Jesus Christ, now it's like goddamn Beirut. <laughs> you know, but that's what happens, man, you know. A lot of people don't know Chicago's segregated on a lot of sides. You got our north side. That's where I'm from. Uh, it was mostly white, Latino. You got Polish, Italian out there. And then you got the west, south side. Uh, that's mostly Hispanic, uh, Puerto Rican. But uh, then you got the deep south side and west side. And that's where all the problems are right now. And it's a shame, too. There's a lot of good people on them because, uh, you know, you got Comiskey Park over there. And, of course, I'm a Cubby fan, so I really don't pay attention to the Comiskey Park much. <laughs> but what's up, Kev? Australia! What's up there, mate? <laughs> I feel sorry for you guys over in Australia, man, with them freaking beaky laws. But anyway, um, it goes on to say another reason uh, people, you know, this one was a funny one. It says to get more attention. So... <laughs> And you know what? It, it's actually right because I remember, you know, probating and you got your patch and stuff like that. You're around the club for a while. Then you see the other prospects and, well, we call them probates. So the probates came up and they would get what we call patch power. That's when they're on top of the freaking world. It usually takes a year for it to get thrown out of there and get it out of their system and shit. But, yeah, they would get that patch power, man, and it was all about the attention. And they're right about that, man, because, you know, a lot of guys are going to join that club for the reputation and the attention because, let's face it, man, we're a bunch of, you know, guys on adrenaline, and <laughs> they want to get some. And that patch, and let, let me tell you, a patch is just like freaking, it, it draws a woman towards you. You know, I don't know how many times uh, I've seen that happen in uh, <laughs> the community. But, uh, and you know, a lot of people want to be a part of a legacy, man. You know, look at the big four clubs. You know, you got the Outlaws, you got the Angels, you got the Mongols, you got, you know, Sons of Silence, Pagans, Ditos. You know, them clubs have been around for a long freaking time. And a lot of guys bled for that club. A lot of guys went to prison for that club. And there's a legacy behind it. Now, that's true brotherhood. You know, I don't know if you guys seen the motorcycle madhouse where I debated that law enforcement guy. He was in a law enforcement motorcycle club. And I really don't think he understood 
you know, what the brotherhood meant. And for them to go out there and put on three-piece patches and stuff like that kind of waters down the brotherhood. But what evens worse is when you got clubs out there, and this would have been unfucking seen in my day in the early 90s, man. Because I got in in 93. Before then, it was the hangarounds and, you know, growing up with the guys. But it wasn't, you would have never seen other than Blue Knights wearing a three-piece motorcycle club patch with an MC on it. And nowadays, that waters everything down. And that's why a lot of these clubs, you know, the bigger clubs ain't wearing the one percenter patches, you know, because they've been watered down. And God forbid we got that freaking, what is it, in a week or two? Hey, what's up, DJ Ant? What's up, man? A week or two, we got that freaking uh, Mayans MC coming out. God knows how many freaking pop-up clubs we're going to have to deal with then. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, Ironhead, you got cop clubs flipping, trying to claim one percenter clubs. There was actually a one percenter. Uh, they tried it anyway in Chicago. They got caught real fucking quick. And <laughs> but they actually had a Chicago police department, a Chicago cop, running a one percenter club. What the hell is that kind of shit? That's why I say, man, this you know the club scenes, you know, getting upside down and shit right now. So you know. Back to the subject, the reason why guys join a motorcycle club is they want to be a part of something. That's what it comes down to. But being a part of something and being dedicated to it is two different things. You know, there's a lot of guys that go out there and, you know, for instance, I want to start a motorcycle club. You got a lot of them that do that now because they don't want to go through the prospecting period and all that kind of shit. So they want to circumvent the process, circumvent the protocol, and go start their own. Well, for one, that's a chicken shit move on you know, my part anyway. Because, you know, not to try to get off too much a subject. Let's take, you know what, and I'll, and I'll call it out because I always do this lollipop fucking guy, Iron Legacy. You know, uh, he started the Iron Order. The guy did not one time, not once, not one time prospect for that motorcycle club he just went out there and started one so i feel sorry for prospects who go through that club who have to answer to him how can you go to an answer to a guy who's never prospect in his life he don't know what brotherhood means that prospect period's to teach you to get you know the understanding of brotherhood. That's for man. Base looking or shortcuts. You're damn right, base. That's always shortcut, man. Valaka. Hey, we got a smart ass. Here we go. I thought people joined for the hoes and drug money. I don't know, man. Is that what you're looking for? <laughs> you can't do that shit nowadays, man. You have to end up in prison. The hoes are a good thing. But, you know, it is what it is, man. Smart ass. Anyway. <laughs> you know what, Biff? The, you know, the riding and the camping out was another good thing, though. But anyway, you know, back to this Iron Legacy. You know, they just went out there to just do what they, you know, they actually they started off because uh, Lollipop got thrown off. So he pissed everybody off in Iron Order, so he had to get another club together to protect his ass. But... That was just out of pure spite. And what I really hate when these guys go around bashing on clubs, oh, fuck protocol, fuck this. Well, it's only because you couldn't prospect and didn't have the balls to do it. That's why you're out there bashing on clubs, because you couldn't go through the process. You had no balls. <laughs> you're right. I believe he intentionally started IO to just get at AOA because they rejected his pamper ass, and now he has the IL to get at IO, right? He didn't make it nowhere near fucking AOA, man. He tried to push that shit. Uh, we actually got, uh, I don't, uh, what's it called? Uh, base. If you go on our website during all through uh, the chronicles we had with his emails and shit, one popped up where he actually claimed he was an outlaw. He was never a freaking outlaw, man. <laughs> he didn't even get close to it. But, uh, you know, the reason why they call him Izod 
is because he wears them little boat fucking shoes, that little faggot shit. He looks like Gilligan to me. But, uh, yeah, you're right, man. He uh, started IL to get back at IO. EJ, they want to start a MC because they can't stand with the existing clubs and want to water it down for their own personal reasons. You got that damn right, uh, DJ. Hey, what's up, Chicago FD? But you got that right. <laughs> they just can't go through the process the correct way. And then they get out there saying, well, this is the way things should be. Well, how the hell do you know? You never went through a prospect or probate period to know any of this shit. You didn't have the balls to do it. <laughs> so how the hell are they going to know what the hell they're supposed to do? And that's when you start getting the cops in the motorcycle clubs. And I know I'm getting off uh, the subject with uh, why people want to join a motorcycle club, but I guess that can kind of tie into it. You know, why would guys like this want to join a motorcycle club? Personally, the guy freaking went and, uh, you know, was some painter contractor and then worked for, so he was a corporate thug as well he was. And, you know, you got to question the guy's reasons for why he would want to join a motorcycle club. Ride free. Prospecting sucks. I had to go through uh, three states over once to get a poker chip because another member wanted one. <laughs> I'm telling you what, man, I remember, <laughs> shit, I remember going from Chicago to the pumpkin run in Atlanta and coming back in a 12-hour span. I know, it sucked. And uh, back in the 50s, clubs started because of uh, returned World War II soldiers just couldn't fit back in. Same of Korea and Nam, because they were in combat. That is what made them brothers. Hell freaking yeah, Ant. Uh, what's up, Eddie? Yeah, you got that right. A lot of people, you got to look at it. Look at the beginning of, you know, motorcycle clubs. Now, they had them going beforehand, but they were mostly, you know, riding clubs and what we would call today hog because uh, you had your manufacturer type of clubs back then and that's what they did to sponsor them because you got to quite admit back in the uh, you know 2030s and after the 40s there was no tv there was no internet so it's pretty fucking boring so you had to get out there and do something but yeah they started because they were in war together they bled together and they watched each other's back and that's you know one of the biggest premises of a motorcycle club, and that could be another reason why people want to join, is because they want to be a part of that group. They want to be, uh, you know, feel that camaraderie, you know, like you said, uh, Ant, that, you know, our vets felt uh, base, because a good majority of men are tribal at the core, and they want to do man shit with other men. You're damn right. Uh, see you later, Kimmy. Uh, you're right, uh, base. There's nothing better than to get out there and, you know, live it up with all your friends and, you know, your brothers and go out there, let loose. And, you know, with me personally, I never had my old lady around with the club scene because that was my thing. Again, I was raised in a different air and, you know, it was okay. The women didn't come with the men. The men did their own things and... You know, hey, I'm loosening up on that, though. Like, now, there's nothing sexier than a woman on a bike, man. Come on, you guys got to agree with that. Especially, you know, they wear them freaking stringy freaking shirts, man. And you got their hair kicking back. Hey, you got to love a woman on a bike now. It used to be where I couldn't even accept them on the front seat. It was just a back seat for me. But now, you know what? I sit back and say... What an idiot I was. <laughs> Think that way. They're freaking sexy. Ronnie. Cops are the biggest club gang in America. You got that right, Ronnie. Just like I was uh, telling that guy on Motorcycle Madhouse on uh, the past episode. Uh, <laughs> for every crime that you guys try to throw on a one percenter or a club member, I can throw two or three on one of your guys. He didn't like that shit too much. Uh, let's see here, 70s and 80s, hell yeah, Biff. You know, those are the guys I actually got to learn from. I was real freaking fortunate that I got to learn from guys 60s and uh, 70s and 80s. So, Beamer, let's see what you got here, man. Yeah, I admit it, Ant. <laughs> Women sexy on them bikes, Ant. Uh, what you got here? Beamer W, are motorcycle clubs actually about motorcycles? Well, yeah, they're, you know, that's the center thing that actually pulls people together in a core. So, yeah, you know, I remember, well, shit, when we were Pistons, we were together every day, and every day we were working on the bikes, and, you know, it kept us together. It was, you know, it was the freaking, uh, 
you know, center point everything. Uh, let's see here. Project Redfoot. I love a biker chick that looks like she'll take a swing at me. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. You know what? I love the ones that are actually going to go into a bar with you and you get some shit and they're the first one to grab a freaking pull cue, man. I, you know what? There's nothing sexier. You know, get your fight done and then you take them home. That's where you go. That'll get your adrenaline pumping. Uh, Biff Barf. Now copped with three-piece patch bullshit. Oh, you're damn right on that one, man. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I can't get over it. And a lot of people say that three-piece patches don't matter anymore. I don't know if I'll ever get over it. But uh, like I told the guy uh, on the last episode, why don't you guys just put on a one-piece or a two-piece or some shit like that? Why do you got to cross that line? Because there's always been a line between motorcycle clubs and cops. You know, everybody knew their fucking place. It was a good arrangement. They tried busting us. We didn't want to get busted, so we stayed the fuck away. And now it's all intermingled, man. It's like all fucked up. Uh, we're all the nude mud wrestlers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got that right there, George. Thomas, no three-piece patch and have L.E. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. You know what it is? I really think members of law enforcement, I think they're the ones who got their ass kicked in high school, man. I really do, Thomas. I think they got stuffed in lockers. I think they got swirlies, and they got stuffed in a freaking locker. And now... They got a badge. They want to go out there, play King Kong, and get back at everybody. But at the same time, they got no self-esteem, and they see their old lady looking at a real biker. So they get jealous or some shit like that. So they got to go out, get the vest, got to go get the Harley, and they try to act like something they're not. You know, one of the biggest things about being a biker is doing what the fuck you want, not caring what anybody else wants to do. And I never got it, man. I never do get people that say, hey, well, you should do this or you should do that. Or what the fuck are you talking about, man? What shit are you smoking? I'm going to do whatever the hell I want to do. That's what a biker was supposed to be. That's what this lifestyle is supposed to be. That's freedom. So, hey, so hell yeah, Hollywood. You dated my old lady because she has a hell of a jab and right cross and can shoot the nuts off a net at this <laughs> I'm telling you, ain't it base, man? You got a partner that you can freaking trust. You know, just don't tell them what the hell you're doing on the freaking side. You'll be all right, man. You'll keep your nuts. Uh, <laughs> and as society struggled to conform, bikers, greasers got pushed out and became the outlaw. That's a whole other definition. You know what, Ant? You, you know what? I got to agree with you that. You know, a lot of people think one percenters are, you know, criminals and stuff like that but outlaw came from ama it was a sanctioned type of deal you know i don't know if any of you guys know the racing uh, they're tracking and all that shit well ama is like nascar they sanction the racing events so when clubs didn't call an outlaw event and that's where the definition is well then you can get into the one percenter crap and blah 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 but the definition of outlaw is not criminal in a motorcycle sense. The definition is doing what you want to do and not having to worry about a sanctioned body to tell you what to do. So, yeah, I agree with you on that totally. Uh, Project uh, Redfoot, I agree too many people become cops for regen. You know what? It, actually, if you think about it, why would anyone want to be a cop? It would be so damn boring if you ask me. You can't do shit. So why would you want to become a freaking cop? You know, you know, maybe that's why they got to go out there and join biker clubs and shit like that, that are LE, because they got to capture something because their freaking life's boring. You can't do nothing. You always got to worry about, you know, being the straight and narrow. You know, that, that shit don't sound no fun to me. So <laughs> fuck all that shit. That's, you know what, basically why, you know, people join motorcycle clubs and, uh, you know, <laughs> they're going to keep on joining them. Let's just hope after uh, the first premiere of Mayans that we don't got them all over the fucking place again because they really, uh, you know what, they really cause a lot of problems out there. And it's not being a dick and saying, you know what, do it the right way and shit. The reason why the protocol came about, everybody, 
and this actually started with the clubs themselves, is because they don't want, you know, just take a dominant, for example. Let's take Chicago. That way it's easier. The AIA don't want a damn club out there fucking robbing people and causing all kinds of shit because, you know what, the cops don't come to them. They're going to go to the fucking AOA because they're the dominant. So they're policing themselves. That's what protocol is. You know, it's not the, a club saying, hey, you can't do this or you can't do that. No, it's freaking, you know what, if you, you want to be the balls to have, you know, start your own club, then do it the right way. It ain't that freaking hard to go to a party. It ain't that hard to go say, hey, you know, this is our intentions. You know, this is what we're about. You know, what do you guys think? <laughs> that simple. And then, you know what? You do it right through the protocol. You're going to make money on your parties because you're going to have all kinds of the fucking clubs there at your parties. You'll make money on your T-shirts. People look good. You know, you'll be able to go to other events. And if you notice people who do it the wrong way are the ones sitting in their backyards or building clubhouses in their backyard because they can't go anywhere. <laughs> so do it the right way. Shit. Then the territory grab started and testosterone driven heroes took root and those clubs had to support themselves. Yeah, welcome to the 60s and 70s. <laughs> Biff Bart, you can always spot them. New leathers, new boots, standing on the corner looking all over the place under a cover of pigs' bits. You know what? Every time I, I, I can remember, this especially happened a lot with the Pistons. Anytime there was a fucking party, because the Pistons were associated with the AOA, and every time there was an AOA party, you had the FBI and all that bullshit out there. So every time there was a party, you'd see one of them little motherfuckers walking around, taking our license plates down, taking pictures, everything, intelligence gathering and shit. Yeah, they're a pain in the ass, let me tell you. I always said they had more pictures of me and my friends than we did. Uh, no sunburn. Ironhead, join for the right reasons, writing brotherhood and 100% dedication. Yeah, you're totally right on that, IH. Bulladak, will MCs need to relax bike rules considering that Harleys aren't as popular with people under 40 as they once were? You know what? I'm not in, I haven't been in the club scene for a while. Uh, I know in Europe, and if anybody's in Europe or Asia can speak to this, they, you know, one percenter clubs that we see here in the States, they don't have Harleys over there. You know, they ride other kind of machines over there. Uh, they ride their Triumphs. They ride even Hondas and shit because Harley's over in Europe and uh, Oz, Thailand, and uh, Southeast Asia. They're pretty expensive out there, and they're a rare breed over in them. But as far as here, and you're right, people under 40 right now aren't joining motorcycle clubs. It's not like it used to be. And I think that has to do with a lot of, about with technology. Technology has killed everything, you know. It's no more face-to-face. -face, it's more over the Internet like we're doing now. Or, you know, you don't actually sit down and have a conversation with a person. And, you know, <laughs> in reality, you know, now we're all living uh, the fantasy highway crap. But, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a lot different now. And they're going to have a lot more harder and harder time getting people under 40. So that's why you'll see a lot of people, you know, going more towards riding clubs than you do motorcycle clubs because the riding clubs which is the thing that i recommend to everybody because with motorcycle clubs there's a lot more dedication involved than the riding clubs riding clubs are to get together and have some fun have a party go out for a weekend blah 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 go to work do what you want to do so riding clubs they involve everybody man they involve different makes and might uh you know motorcycles and all that good shit but yeah, it's going to be hard for them to get uh, people coming in now. The adventurous spirit uh, among American scooter folk are the modern-day cowboys and mountain men. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn's base. You got that right, buddy. Millennials don't join anything, right, Thomas? You know what? It's actually pretty fucking true. Ronnie, Harley is pretty expensive all over. You're damn right they are. Uh, Kev, here we go. We got Kev over in uh, Oz. Majority of outlaw clubs in Australia still insist on members riding Harley Davidsons. Okay, do they do they insist or is it a requirement, Kev? Because I know some of them I've seen, like the Finks or the Camacheros out there. They don't have to. Some of the time they don't even need a bike, 
But, you know, that's a different culture. You guys got to remember, America is one culture. Then you got Canada. Then you got the Oz. You got Britain. They all It's all totally different than what the United States does. The United States is, you know, the only thing we really did export was motorcycle clubs. But uh, the way their traditions and all that stuff run in the different continents, you know, if you want to talk Europe, uh, go to Dibs, Dibber in the Wind. He really knows what he's talking about. He's over in the UK. He knows the European scene. The most I know about the European scene, man, is I love cafe racers. <laughs> also, purification of the American male base, yeah. Uh, and after you rode a BMW, you'll think twice about a Harley. Actually, my uh, I ride a 01 Fat Boy. And after this Fat Boy, I'm probably, because uh, I've had Harleys my whole freaking life. And, you know, there's just so much more out there than a Harley-Davidson. Yeah, I'll keep my 01. I'll never get rid of my 01. But I'm looking into an Indian, or I love Mean Streaks, man. I love those Mean Streaks, too. Uh, Australia rides Harley. They follow the U.S. Watts. European rides whatever. Keb, there's an assistant generally backed up with some physical insistence. Rock on. Yeah, the bike scene in Europe's totally different. Yeah. Well, you know, again, with Europe, I know the cafe racer scene, man. I used to love building those little suckers out of sporties. You know, a lot of, uh, and I'll actually put some pictures of the builds I've done with them. But I love Bobber and Cafe Racers. Yeah, Gator, I'd love to get a Mean Streak. You know, I ride an old one Fat Boy right now, but, you know, a Mean Streak, they some bad motherfuckers, man. Until recently, the Rebels insisted you rode a large Harley. You could not ride a Sportster. You could only, uh, well, Rebels, well, the Rebels out in Oz, if everybody don't know, they're the biggest motorcycle club in Australia. Am I right, Kathy? Barf, I hope USA never starts law like Australia. None of them other places do the same. Oh, my God. I feel sorry for Kev and all the guys out in Australia. I really do. Them places are terrible with the laws I hear. You know, I remember doing an interview with a motorbiker, and we were talking about it. And, you know, we're about 40 minutes in. That's uh, good for me blabbing away. Motorcycle Madhouse with James Hollywood about Charlie. Now, two days a week. Tuesdays and Saturdays at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Listen and download all episodes for free on HarleyBikerNews.com. Or the show is available on all major podcasting platforms like iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Hey there, this is Hollywood from the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. And you're listening to Hollywood on Motorcycle Madhouse. Want to keep up with all my projects? Then head on over to my Twitter account, at Glow Hollywood. And don't forget to listen to Motorcycle Madhouse every Tuesday and Saturday on all iTunes, iHeartRadio, and all major podcasting platforms. Now, let's take this show to the next level with our up-and-coming band segment. Remember, you can listen and download all episodes for free on HarleyBikerNews.com or available on all major podcasting platforms like iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Queen the Fox Lady 
and welcome to a special edition of 60 Minutes. Bravery, courage, defiance, heartbreak. They're not normally words you'd attach to Father's Day, but Sunday, the 2nd of September, 1984, was a Father's Day like no other. Not before, and thankfully, not since. It was the day two rival bikie gangs went to war in the car park of a Sydney pub, leaving dozens of people wounded and seven dead, including an innocent 15-year-old girl. The notorious Milpera massacre remains the worst single outbreak of bikey violence the world has ever seen. This Father's Day marks 30 years since that bloodbath stunned Australia. The images are sometimes violent and confronting because you're about to see and hear compelling first-hand accounts of what really happened that day. Jock Ross is a hard man. One of Australia's most feared bikey bosses. He's been shot, beaten within an inch of death and jailed for murder. He's now 71. A grandfather, defiantly alive and defiantly defensive to this day of his infamous role in the 1984 Milpera massacre. You'd let this feud, this war, spill out publicly? No, I didn't. They came to us. Get it right. They came to us. Any car in the vicinity, the Viking Hotel, Milpera, alleged man gone berserk with a rifle, shots have been fired. It's Father's Day, September 2nd, a quiet afternoon in the car park of a Western Sydney pub. War erupts between two bikey gangs. Jocks Comancheros and sworn enemies the Banditos. When the last shot's fired, the gun-smoked car park is littered with wounded and bleeding bikers. Six of their brothers-in-arms lie dead, as well as an innocent 15-year-old girl. 
I can see her now, she'd probably be smile, smiling at me for doing this for her. It's now 30 years since that shocking day. It was absolutely unbelievable. In terms of biking history, there's never been anything like it since, and there was never anything like it before. Tonight, inside the massacre, as never told before, the crucial witness... And I thought, I'm not going to let them get away with this. ...who's defied decades of death threats, breaks her silence. They're all making gestures like that, screaming... Slit, slit your throat. Slitting the throat. For the first time, a grieving father reveals 30 years of anguish. It's just... I can imagine what she looked like on that day. The detectives tasked with Australia's biggest ever criminal investigation unveil evidence never released to the public. Should he have blood on his hands today? I believe so. And the notorious bikey boss himself in his first ever in-depth interview. Jock, 30 years on, what responsibility or blame do you wear for the Milpera massacre? Jock Ross still lives to ride. He's now retired, but for three decades, he was the formidable leader of the Comancheros, the bikey gang he founded. To this day, Jock wears the club colours with pride. When you wear those Comanchero colours, what feeling does that give you? Well, you're all one. That's the thread that binds everyone together. that gives everyone their identity. That identity, that tribal loyalty, would give rise to a spiral of violence. And Linda Motten would get caught in the middle. Linda, like so many of the innocent bystanders that day, have had their lives shaped by the bikey gangs who went to war at Milpera. What I saw were deliberate actions. They went there armed, they knew what was going to happen, they were waiting for it to happen. They could hardly be surprised when it did happen. And innocent people like yourself got caught up in their war. Many, many innocent people. From a dirt poor, strict childhood in the slums of Glasgow, Jock Ross learned to fight and survive at an early age. In 1967, the Scotsman immigrated to Australia, having served six years in the British Army clearing landmines in Northern Africa and Asia. What values did your military career teach you? Matesmanship. So one thing you learned as a soldier, you met. In truth, Jock never stopped being a soldier. He missed the discipline, the camaraderie, Harley David. Loyalty, tell me about that. How important is loyalty to you? Extremely. Loyalty is uh, the whole essence of everything. If you're not loyal, if you haven't got loyalty, you haven't got anything. Over the years, Jock recruited a loyal band of men, all searching for something in life. Proud outlaws, the one percenters who chose to live on the fringe of mainstream society. When did the club start to become armed? When did you choose weapons? <sighs> the club was always, you know, from the beginning. See, you were a different era. It wasn't 2014. Guns were easy to get. So guns were always there. Jock ran his club like a private army. He wrote the rules and drilled his Comancheros in paramilitary exercises. They learned to shoot, fight and defend. This film from 1977 shows the Comancheros of that time in all their glory. An intimidating armed force with Jock Ross taking the title of Supreme Commander.
How do you describe or how do you characterise someone like Jock Ross? I think he's very uncompromising. I think he's ruthless. Lindsay Simpson is an author and journalist. She co-wrote Brothers in Arms about the bikey war that was about to unfold. He'd taken over other gangs. He'd managed to get, you know, dominance in the bikey scene. But then uh, the, his very own men, the Comancheros, split away. And that was devastating to Jock. By the early 1980s, Jock's tough line was causing dissent in the ranks of younger, less disciplined recruits. Jock's loyal wife, Vanessa, noticed a change in the atmosphere. What did you say to Jock? I told him there's something wrong with them. I said they're really acting weird and strange all of a sudden. A year before Milpera, and to save his club from splintering, Jock gave in to his men and relocated the Comancheros from its Western Sydney clubhouse. Moving closer to the city, they found their new base in a waterfront mansion on Sydney Harbour. That then, though, was the beginning of the downfall. That was the beginning of, of beginning trouble. Beginning of the end. Beginning of the end. Yeah. It is the most unlikely of places for a biker clubhouse. It sure is. I mean, it's one of the best pieces of real estate in Sydney, really, when you look at it. The gentrified piece of Louisa Road Birchgrove was shattered with the blast of bone-shaking harleys, rock bands and wet t-shirt contests. The young Comancheros partied hard. The old guard hated it. The truth of it is, this house is Jock's worst nightmare. This is where he lost control of his club. I think the other thing to say too is culturally it was so different. I mean, he lost control because the boys wanted the view and the better lifestyle and wanted to get away from the military drills. So I think for them, that showed how much they'd moved away from Jock. And in a matter of weeks, Jock announced he was splitting the club. The wild men could stay and form a city chapter. Jock and his loyalists would return to the more familiar surroundings of suburban Western Sydney. Were you comfortable at Birchgrove? No. Why not? Wrong area. Wrong place. In hindsight, that was a disaster. Yeah. To me it was. And to a lot of the old people it was. We didn't fit. But this was much more than just about a clubhouse and Jock feeling out of place. This was about ego and personalities. The Birchgrove chapter would end up under the command of Anthony Spencer, who went by the Comanchero nickname of Snodgrass or Snoddy. Tell me about Snoddy when he came along. What did you think of him? He was a lost bloke, he was a lost soul. So we took him in and he grew on you. You, you took him under your wing, essentially, didn't Pretty you? Pretty well. That relationship evolved into like a father-son relationship. Big brother, little brother, father and son, whatever way you want to put it. But Snotty would do the unthinkable. After a trip to the United States to buy bike parts, he returned with a bombshell. He'd secretly negotiated permission to form an Australian chapter of the Bandidos. He and his 30 men were forming a rival gang. The man who'd been like a son to Jock was now a traitor. Started to come down my driveway. She looked, Jock. We're quitting the club. We hand the collars in, and we're all joining the Bandidos. Okay, me. Shook his hand. So I could pick the collars up. Goodbye. I can't believe you took it that. I'll tell you, I swear in my soul. I mean, these, That's how... these were your men. They've been disloyal to you. No, we didn't want them. They'd cut all ties. The seeds of Milpera had been sown. Coming up. 
how did you hit back? Blew the shit out of the Proverbs. No one could know that in just a few months... There was a long barrel firearm. He's got a gun! Father's Day would end in bloodshed. Then it went off and it was on for young and old. That's next on 60 Minutes. Welcome back to 60 Minutes. The year is 1984 and Australia's most violent bikey war is brewing. Leanne Walters is 15 years old and about to become the innocent face of the Milpera massacre. She's bought her dad a Father's Day present and is on her way to see him after she looks around the bike swap meeting in the car park of the Viking Tavern. But Leanne never gets to see her dad on Father's Day. She's gunned down in the battle between the notorious Comancheros, led by Jock Ross, and the newly formed Bandidos, led by Snotty Spencer. It remains the world's worst single outbreak of bikey violence, and as a result, some images are disturbing and viewer discretion is advised. Jock Ross was a marked man. He and Snotty, once brothers in arms, were now bitter rivals. There were threats, bashings, and an apparent attempt on Jock's life when a mysterious car knocked him off his bike. A spiral of violence that was getting out of control. Then hit back. How did you hit back? Blew the shit out of the clubhouse. You ordered that? It was a consensus. It's got to be done. So without being said, without being ordered, it was known that... Something had to be done. What message then were you hoping to send? The message was, back off. You pushed too far. But there was no backing off from either side. The fuse was lit. Jock, have you been back to Milpera since that day in 1984? No. What does this place mean to you? Well, it's not a happy place, is it? The final showdown will come at the Viking Tavern, a Milpera pub that will forever be etched in bikey and criminal folklore. What do you think about what happened here that day? Too many people died here that day, didn't they? You know, you you don't know how much you miss a person when they're gone. You don't know. Passing time has never dulled this journey for Rex Walters. He's come to be with his daughter Leanne, like he's done on all special occasions for 30 years. Morning, Leanne. I bought you some lovely flowers. In April, that's a birthday, and when that day comes around, I shatter, and, you know, it's a cold feeling goes through me, and I go over to the cemetery and have a few words through. I know it's, it may sound silly, but it's what every father would do. And join us next episode for the Milpera Massacre, brought to you by 60 Minutes. Also... Next episode, we're going to have the Northern Illinois Confederation of Clubs on uh, the Madhouse. And they wanted to give an interview and help uh, settle some rumors that have been out there on the streets of Chicago. But thanks for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Motorcycle Madhouse. Don't forget to go over to Insane Throttle's new YouTube channel and check me out over on Biker Angle. Also get your daily dose of biker news every morning at HarleyLiberty.com. If you haven't done so already, go like the new Motorcycle Madhouse Facebook page. And until next week, I'm James Hollywood Machikari. And remember, keep that throttle crack wide open. 
Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus $30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. Holiday tips and wine stories from Kristen and Paul at Total Wine and More. The sweetness of a maple glazed ham paired with a bourbon barrel aged Cabernet. We went there. Now my taste buds are hopping. I can help you impress the boss with a great bottle of wine. Here's to a raise in 2019. As you check off that gift list, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection at Total Wine and More. Come explore at our 12 Northern Virginia locations. Now open in Reston at Plaza America Center across from Whole Foods. Shop online at TotalWine.com. 